Well, this morning we are uh, wrapping up our series called Let's Say Grace. And in this series, we have been uh, walking through Galatians, which is a book in the New Testament written by a man named Paul, who has this crazy story of how God completely transformed his life from being uh, this, this person who persecuted Christians to being uh, arguably one of the greatest Christian missionaries of all time. And Galatians, like some of the other uh, books in the New Testament that we have, uh, are letters. In this letter in particular, Paul wrote to this group of churches in this region called Galatia. And that's why we call it the book of Galatians. And we've been talking uh, about a lot of different things. We've talked about generosity. We've talked about uh, the spirit. Uh, we've talked about freedom. And today, as we close out, we're going to talk uh, about community. And we're going to tackle the last chapter, chapter 6. Um, so buckle up. I'm really excited for this. Do you ever read something, uh, maybe a phrase, maybe a tweet, maybe a headline, and uh, there's just something that sticks with you and that you, you chew on or you resonate with? I, I read a, a tweet this week from a pastor in New York who just said this. He said, we are wounded in community and we are healed in community. There's no way around it. Now, he went on and said, now, oftentimes, we're typically not healed in the community that we were wounded by, or we're not always. But isn't that interesting? From a biblical, theological thought, community is a, a, a calling, a mandate, a hard wiring inside of us. If we look at the idea, the concept of God himself, we, we sometimes use the phrase Trinity, which is this concept of a God three in one where God exists both as God the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. We see even in the creation story in Genesis, the very first part of our Bible, that together we have the the, the Spirit hovering over the deep. The the Holy Spirit is there with the Father. When we read uh, the Gospel of John, it talks about how in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's referring to Jesus. We, we recognize that God in himself is a communal God. We realize that in the beginning in the garden, that God used to walk around with his creation, and they would be together. We have been made to be in community. Yet as my brother Rich said, it's often a place that we're wounded. I mean, if we wanted to have a little counseling session right now, I'm sure most of us could tell a story of a time that in some sort of community we were wounded. Maybe it was in a family. Maybe it was in a friend group, a class, a sports team. Maybe it was even in a church itself. Yet we've also probably experienced before the healing nature of being surrounded by love by a community. There have been moments in my life, I know, where when I didn't feel like I could walk, people picked me up. Sometimes literally, and sometimes just metaphorically. Community is such a gift. And what I think, when it comes to Christian community, is grace is what makes community possible. This whole series has been about this idea of grace. And without grace, community cannot flourish, it cannot happen. Because as we've learned through studying Galatians, we recognize this idea that there is this battle, as we talked about last week, between our fleshly sinful desires and the Spirit of God. And that there's this constant tension. And the truth is, without the Spirit of God, the flesh will always triumph. 
without Jesus going to the cross, our flesh would always win out. And yet we recognize that if in a community where we are a mix of broken people who have broken pasts, who have sin we're dealing with now, who are not perfect, don't have it all together, still miss the mark, we recognize this, that the only way that community works is there for grace to be present. Grace from God himself to us, and that grace that we've received from God flowing out of us. Because it doesn't matter. I mean, take marriage, for example. If you've been married before, you recognize this. And my wife is home with sick kids today, so I'm not going to get the, the glare, although she might be watching online. But we recognize this, right? But when you get married, like, you just sort of think, like, we will never be that couple who, like, yells at each other. We'll never, you know, throw shade at one another. We'll never do any of those sort of things because we're in love, unlike you know, all the other people who've came in history before this, they don't understand love like we do. And we recognize how quickly, you know, I, I have not fully understood how broken, how messed up, how not patient, how not great of a person I was until I got married and then became a father. Because through those two things, I've realized in my own self so much of my own flaws, so much of my own junk. There's been a refining period of that. Yet, I also know by those two uh, relationships in particular, with my wife and then with my sons, there's been so much goodness that's came. And the goodness always outweighs the bad in this. But let's strap in. Let's let's talk about Galatians. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Galatians chapter 6. I'm going to be starting in uh, verses 1 through 3. It'll be up on the screen. And I'll let you know for those who are uh, playing at home and who are interested, I'm going to be using a couple different translations this morning because sometimes I think uh, it's fun to look at different translations and see how different translators uh, will use different verbiage and words and stuff like this. So, for example, this is from uh, the NLT, the, the New Living Translation. It just says this, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by sin, You who are godly, or as other translations sometimes would say, those who are led by the Spirit, should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. Now let's unpack this for a moment. Because there's a lot in there. I, I love the way that it sort of puts some verbiage, some 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 uh, language around this that are easier for us to grap- grapple with, okay? So if you have a brother or sister, uh, in particular another believer, someone who follows Jesus or proclaims that, who has been overcome by sin, you who are godly or you who are led by the Spirit should gently and humbly help that person back on the right track. Now, I don't know about you, but our cultural climate does nothing like that. Our cultural climate is very tribalistic, right? Even in Christian circles, where there's this idea where maybe because it's an overcorrection from time periods of whether it's abuse from leadership or bad theology or, uh, or biblical interpretation, that there has become this almost this idea of when someone fails... And it doesn't matter if they swing one this way politically or that way, if they're from this 
faith tradition or that faith tradition, it's almost like this idea of like, all right, someone messed up. Let's dig up every piece of their past. Let's put them on trial with no actual jury and let's execute them immediately. And yet we see here what Paul is saying is, no, 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 no. If you have a brother or sister who's been overcome by sin, you should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. It doesn't say cast them aside immediately. It doesn't say throw stones. It doesn't say look at their sin and tell them that it's worse than your own sin. No, it says gently and humbly deal with that. Gently and humbly need to make a comeback. Gently and humbly need to become something again that maybe in our sons and daughters as we raise them up, we should amplify and edify that. You know, oftentimes in our culture, and I'm not saying all of our culture is bad, but but, but part of our almost like American DNA is we love tough leaders, people who take charge and say it how it is. Which some of that has some greatness to it, but I think one of the uh, overcorrections that are harder for us who are trying to be Jesus followers, who are trying to be discipled by Jesus Christ, not our culture, is this, is we have to come to a place again where we believe that gentleness and humility is actually something good. Because oftentimes when we look at that, we say, what a pushover. We say they're not calling to account. And this isn't a, 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 a saying that call, holding people accountable isn't good. Because it is. This isn't saying that people should not have consequences for their sin. Because they should and they will. But it's this recognition that every single one of us will fail. In fact, every single one of us in this room, I guarantee right now, has something in their life in which they are not living out the fruit of the Spirit. They are not living out the life and the teaching of Jesus. Every single one of us. And it's because of grace that we experience the new life of that. But so when we experience our brothers and sisters who fall, we shouldn't cast them aside and ostracize them. We should love them. We should gently and humbly seek to put them back on right track. And he, Paul even says this. Another translation I read said this. You should do this because you should be careful because you may be in the same situation as them by sundown. It has been crazy over the last year or so to see uh, different people in kind of the faith culture of America who used to be these people who were on pedestals who you would find their books in all of the bookstores and all that have falls from grace. And it's because there wasn't accountability. No one ever put them back on the right path. But also I guarantee some of them probably spoke out against other people who fell. And it's this reminder that every single one of us have this tension of the flesh versus the spirit. It's easy for us to say things like, I would never do that sin. I've sat with a lot of people in the midst of their brokenness in their darkest hours who said, I never thought I would do X, Y, Z. I never thought this would happen to my family. And the truth is, the goodness is that God's grace is always there. God is always with us. He always loves us. But we need to be careful that we don't get cocky. We don't walk around thinking like, I'm untouchable. I would never do that. Life comes at you fast. Paul goes on and just talks about this. Share each other's burdens in this way. You know, here's a question. Here's a thought. And 
Most studies today, when, when you read about people's views who aren't followers of Jesus, what their thoughts on Christians are, they typically say they think that they're hypocritical and they're judgmental. There's other things, but those are kind of the two big ones. But So here's, here's my question. What if Jesus' followers, what, what if we, uh, I, I think we should be known by being burden lifters, not burden layers. There's many people I know who have felt like followers of Jesus have laid burdens upon them. And sometimes that's just not true, but sometimes it has been true. There have been other followers of Jesus I know in my life, well-meaning, not intending to harm me, who have laid burdens on me. Burdens of shame, burdens of fear, burdens of feeling like I couldn't measure up, that I'm not worthy of the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And I just wonder, what if our role in our world and our community today was less about being people who lay burdens upon others, both intentionally or unintentionally, and were more burden lifters? People who help take away the burden. Because let's be honest, every single one of us know that inside of us there's brokenness. Most people don't need someone to tell them that they're broken. They already know. When I mess up, I don't know about you, one of the things that's really annoying is when someone tells me how I messed up. I already know that. (laughs) And I understand why sometimes I have to do that. But they know it. And so what if we as Jesus followers were known to lift burdens rather than just lay down burdens on people? Now let's continue on in verse 4. Each one of us should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Let's talk about what Paul is saying there and what he's not saying. He's not saying taking pride in yourself in a good way of like, yeah, you're the man, you're the lady, you're the best. He's not talking about this pride. He's taking, he's talking about saying this pride of, of sort of like a hard, hard day's work of saying, okay, I've tried my best. I've done what I was supposed to do. I, I've tried to seek out and make sure that my motives in my life are aligned with Jesus. Not perfect, not proclaiming I am good all on my own, but just understanding this idea that we can say, I don't have to compare myself. You know, maybe you've heard the the old adage, comparison is the thief of joy. Man, I believe that. I don't know how much of my life has been burdens and has been terrible as I have tried to compare myself to others. You know, we live in a time where it's really easy to compare ourselves to others, maybe even more so. I was telling uh, my small group last night, we, uh, sickness in our house, we couldn't go to this friend's giving, but I dropped off there and someone was asking me a couple weeks ago, I got to go to... Uh, a wedding in Michigan, and uh, long story short, my whole family was originally going to go, my parents and everything, and my uh, son Gideon got pink eye the day before. And so my parents ended up staying home uh, and watching the kids, which meant we got a 24-hour period kid-free, which is like, yes, Lord. Um, but my mom and my wife were like, are you sure you're going to be okay with, you know, not getting to take your kids and showing them off to your friends? It's like, no, 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 no. They are way more cute on Instagram and Facebook. It's true, right? We post the highlights. We post the highlights. The highlights of our family, of our marriage, even our spirituality. You know what I notice? You know, sometimes you'll see people post pictures like, having quiet time with my God. Like, no one ever really posts like, having a really bad day, doubting if you're there. We don't do that. But here's what's even worse when we talk about community. Comparison kills community. It just does. 
It kills families. It kills uh, workplaces. And it kills churches. It kills the church, I believe. It's too easy for people to either uh, themselves, maybe they're a pastor and they compare themselves to another church down the road. Or honestly, sometimes I think there's times where even people, if you're sitting in the pews and you, you compare your church to another church, there's so many things where most of the time comparison gives zero win. Because let's be honest, when comparison comes, what we do is we do this. Either we only see the highlights of someone else and we only see the bad parts of ourselves, or on the other end, we do the opposite, where we see only uh, the good things that are happening in our life, none of the bad, and only the bad things that are happening for them, none of the good. And so Paul's writing and just trying to let us know, don't compare yourself to others. Don't compare yourself and say, oh, well, they're doing this, so I can do this. No, no, no. Test your actions, your motives, your thoughts based off what you find in Scripture and what you experience through the Spirit. Don't try to compare yourself to others. It's going to be a lose. And not only that, that's why we have to let this comparison go. Because if we're called to carry burdens, here's the reality. There's going to be moments where you're stronger and I'm weaker. And there's going to be moments where you're weaker and I'm stronger. Christianity is not about fairness. It's just not. Jesus told this parable of uh, of this owner of a field who he had workers who started at the beginning of the day and he had workers who started in the last hour. And guess what? They got paid the same thing. This was a parable for this idea of eternal life, of grace. That it doesn't matter if you've been following Jesus for 30 years or 30 seconds. The grace is still there for you. The relationship is still there for you. And it's not about who has the, the, the most sin that God forgave. It's not about who has done the most things or given the most money or done all that. Stop allowing comparison to eat you up inside. Now, he goes on in verse 6 and he says this, Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Now, scholars debate on what exactly should be meant by this. Does this mean that, uh, are they talking about instructors as teachers and pastors and evangelists? Or are they talking about God the Father as the true instructor? Are they talking about instructor as the idea of the church body? Here's what I'd say in this. Uh, No matter what, in some ways it doesn't fully matter exactly what it is. What it's saying is just this. If you've received the instruction or, or the wisdom or the goodness of the word of God, you in your life should be called to generosity and sharing. And it should be called to sharing with furthering the ministry and the advancement of the kingdom of God. Now, that's not my way to like try to be like, make sure you sign up and tithe today. Or that, hey, if you do all of these things, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. We'll get to that in a moment. But I think what Paul is trying to indicate here is just this, and we'll, we'll go on in, in a minute, which will help kind of tie a bow on this. It's just this idea that if you've received something... Are you sharing in the blessing? If you've become a person who receives, are you willing also to give? As my friend Joel taught a few weeks ago, are you living clenched fist or open-handed? Now he goes on, and this kind of helps this. He says in verse 7, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. 
A man reaps what he sows. For whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Now, there's a couple things involved here. The first is just this. What are you investing in your life? With your time, your talent, your treasure, with your calendar, with your family, with your relationships. If you're not experiencing what you're hoping for in life, in particular as a follower of Jesus, if you're not experiencing the fruit of the Spirit as we talked about last week, I'm going to guess probably you're not investing to have that happen. You're investing in the flesh and hoping the Spirit will take over. And that's not the way it works. What we reap or what we sow, which is just basically what you plant, is what you're going to receive. I like to think about it this way sometimes. It's really simple. You can't be mad at God if you plant an apple tree when you wanted an orange tree. You can't plant corn and be mad when it's not soybeans. In your life, you can't live a life distant from God, not following his teachings, not spending time with him, and then be mad at the fact that you feel incredibly anxious, out of control, no peace, and you feel like God is distant. What you sow is what you reap. What you decide to invest in your life is what the return will be here on earth and in eternity. And there's no two ways about this. You know, another way to put it is just this. If you want to receive from God, you must learn to give to God. And that's not just about money. That's this idea of giving your whole self to him. Because some of us are really good at giving God like a quarter of ourself or half of ourself. And even some of us are really good at giving 90%. We keep this 10% hidden sin. And yet, anything we hold back from God puts a barrier between us and God. You see, we can't expect God to give you all he has when you won't give him all you have. Just plain and simple. He goes on in verse 9, he just says this. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. I love the words that he uses there. Don't grow weary in doing good. That's easy to do. And don't give up. That's also easy to do. You know, in my own life, do you know what I've found? I think God sends me through seasons of trying to cultivate new fruit in my life. And I get impatient. And I give up. Maybe it's trying a new spiritual discipline. Maybe it's trying to be a part of a new ministry. Maybe it's even been uh, trying to be generous. And I want instant results. And yet, as Paul reminds us, don't grow weary in doing the good that God has called you to do. Some of us can become jaded because we try to do good for others and we get burned. Or we try to do good for others and it doesn't seem like it helps. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't give up. Let's do it for all people. 
You see, friends, our individual relationship with Christ must push us to neighborly love for all people. If we have an individual relationship with Christ and it doesn't press us to continue to do good, to be generous, to bless other people, our faith, our relationship with God is worthless. It's why Paul wrote that the greatest command truly is to love the Lord, is to love your neighbor as yourself, because by loving your neighbor, you are loving God. Again, it goes back to this idea of community. You were created to be in community. And while there are difficulties and there are hazardous things that happen in community, we can't escape it. God hasn't called you to be this pious person who lives alone and just prays constantly and does nothing for their neighbors, cares nothing for the poor, cares nothing about fighting injustice. He's called us to be in our world, but not of it. He's called us to be light in dark places. He's called us to be grace in a world that oftentimes is filled with hatred and disdain. And so as we're going to close out, I want to read to you from the, the message paraphrase translation. It just says this. For my part, I'm going to boast about nothing but the cross of our master, Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, I have been crucified in relation to the world. Set free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting into little patterns that they have dictated. Can't you see... The central issue in all of this. It's not what you do. I don't submit to circumcision or reject circumcision. It is what God is doing. And he is creating something totally new. A free life. All who walk by this standard are true Israel of God. His chosen people. Peace and mercy on them. Now again, the whole reason Paul wrote this letter. Was to deal with the fact that there was a group of people who were trying to lead these churches astray by telling them that there were certain uh, requirements that were no longer real requirements that they had to follow if they truly wanted to be the people of God. This morning, some of us have burdens in our life that we need to lay down. We have false assumptions and expectations that others have put on us that God has never put on us. For some of us, though, we have to be honest with the fact that we, as Paul wrote in chapter 5, aren't being led by the Spirit, aren't keeping in step with the Spirit. In a lot of ways, the flesh is ruling our lives. And not only is it killing us, it's killing our family, our workplaces, our schools, our church. The truth is, as much as we want to think we are individuals, that our sin is our sin alone. It affects us. It affects generations to come. It affects our family, our marriage, all of those sort of things. And so if you want to truly be all in on community, it's not just about showing up. It's not just about, uh, it's not just about in signing up for everything or volunteering in this way or giving money, but it's about finding wholeness in Christ. Because when we are whole, We bring wholeness to others. You know, Jesus wrote about this idea that his followers are to be salt and light. 
It's hard to be salt and light in our community when we've lost our saltiness and we've put out our light. We have to begin to deal with the inner workings inside of ourselves if we want to bless others. So this morning I'm going to ask you to stand. And we're going to sing one last song. And while we sing this song, my hope and prayer is that this is your moment, this is your time to maybe do some business with God. Maybe there's some sort of um, some sort of battle of the flesh, of sin, that you it's just weighing on you, that it continues to be um, something that you're dealing with and you no longer want it to hold you down, you no longer want it to hold your family down. And maybe that this is your moment to lay down that burden, to allow the burdens that have been placed upon you by your own sin, by the enemy, by culture, to just be lifted. And that maybe you could be free. That maybe, as Paul said, you could boast not in the good things that you do, but in what's been done for you through Jesus Christ and his cross. Would you guys pray with me? Father God, I am deeply humbled. I'm humbled by the fact that God, God, I know my brokenness and I know my sin. I know the things that I wish no one would ever know about me. And God, you know those things. You see those things. And yet you still show up to embrace me, to forgive me, and to love me. You still call me your son. Even when I've disobeyed you again and again. God, this morning I pray for those in this room. God, who like me are broken. God, who are messed up. And who just need to acknowledge their need for a Savior. Who need to acknowledge that they need forgiveness from your son Jesus. God, I pray this morning that, God, there could be healing, there could be burden lifting in the name of Jesus. That we could begin to be people who are disciples of Jesus Christ, following His teachings, His will, His way, being led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, God, experiencing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, boasting about nothing of our own goodness, but only of Your goodness. So God, this morning, if those are there, those who need to experience your forgiveness, God, I pray that they would realize right now all they have to do is call out to you and ask for forgiveness and know that you are good and you will forgive. And God, that maybe lives would begin to be changed this morning. That God, families would be restored. Marriages would be strengthened. Generations from now would be followers of Jesus because of decisions that are made in this moment right now. God, we thank you for the fact that, God, you work in community. God, I pray that if someone makes a decision today, if someone needs to have a conversation today, that, God, maybe they could find a brother or sister in the room and they could experience healing. God, one of the greatest gifts of community is just being a physical representation of love and grace personified through a hug, through prayer. So, God, as we sing... Would you speak to us? We are listening. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.